on August 25th, 2017, the Burmese military launched a genocidal campaign allegedly targeting insurgents in Rakhine State, which consists of mostly Rohingya and other Muslims. Hello and welcome to the USERF Spotlight podcast, a weekly podcast series by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, where we take a deep dive into religious freedom conditions around the world, breaking the situation down for you. Each week, we focus on a different country, region, or topic. Not only do we analyze and explain the religious freedom situation to our listeners, but we also make policy recommendations to the United States government in order to address the immense challenges we bring to light here. Now here is the host of our show, USERF Director of Outreach and Policy, Dwight Bashir, to lead today's discussion. Welcome to USERF Spotlight. Today, on the fifth anniversary of the beginning of the genocidal campaign by the Tatmada, or Burmese military, against the Rohingya people in Burma that began on August 25th, 2017, we're going to discuss the ongoing situation and the various policy responses today. On March 21st of last year, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken announced that the U.S. government had determined that the atrocities committed against the Rohingya by the military and other Burmese authorities constituted genocide. This year also marks the second year of the military coup. Uh, on February 1st of 2021, uh, the Tatmadaw launched a coup installing the State Administration Council, the SAC, which is a military-led uh, junta headed by Senior General Ming on Hulai. And on August 1st of last year, uh, he declared himself prime minister until at least 2023, extending the state of emergency again just on August 1st of this year. So the coup has already exacerbated conditions for all religious communities, including the already dire conditions of the remaining Rohingya in the country, as well as uh, thwarting any regional efforts of repatriation. We're fortunate to, today to have with us USERF policy analysts, Patrick Greenwald, who covers Burma for the commission, to go deeper on these issues. Welcome back to USERF Spotlight, Patrick. Thanks so much. Great to be back. As you well know, USERF's been reporting on conditions in Burma for 20 years now. It would be great if you could share with our audience some background on who the Rohingya are and why they've suffered so much, including a genocide that started five years ago today. Yeah, so as you mentioned, we've been reporting on conditions of religious freedom in Burma uh, since 2000, uh, when we first recommended to the State Department that they designate the country as a, a country of particular concern, or CPC. And we've made this recommendation every year, even during the decade of liberalization that began on 2011. Uh, and a key component of why we have been making this designation every year is the Burmese authorities' actions against the Rohingya community. And the Rohingya are an ethnic group who mostly adhere to Islam, though there are some in the community that do practice other faiths, such as Hinduism or, or none at all. And during the 19th century, when Southeast, uh, South Asia was under the British Raj, the British authorities encouraged the migration of Rohingya and others from Eastern India into the area known as Arakan which is now known as the Rakhine State. And this was the time that the Rohingya arrived in the area. So many local Burman ethnicities regarded the migration of these peoples during the British Raj as illegal, which entrenched long lasting discrimination uh, 
that exists uh, to today. Um, but the Ringa have their roots that go back over a century in the Rakhine state. So in 1982, the Burmese government issued a law stripping the Rohingya of their citizenship and uh, decades of discrimination really cemented their status as one of the most persecuted stateless peoples in the world. Before the outbreak of violence in 2017, the Rohingya population constituted only about 1.5 million people, under 3% of the total population of the country. So the Rohingya have never been a significant segment of the overall population of Burma. Yet since independence, the Burmese military has used have used the existential fear that the prejudice against this community has produced to maintain their grip on power. Yeah, I mean, obviously very disheartening. It's not just what's happened in the last five years, but as, as you just mentioned, and it's been decades. Uh, but can you tell us a little bit more now, what occurred uh, five years ago today on August 25th, 2017, and what makes that date significant? Yeah, so that date's significant because on August 25th, 2017, the Burmese military, under the leadership of General Min Ong Lai, uh, launched a genocidal campaign allegedly targeting insurgents in Rakhine State, which consists of mostly Rohingya and other Muslims. The United Nations Independent Investigative Mechanism for Myanmar documented incidences of Burmese unit, military units involved at this time in indiscriminate killings of civilians, mass rape and arbitrary detention. Uh, so they really kind of began a period of escalated violence targeting this community. Five years later, many of these victims still remain displaced. In July, 2022, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees reported that Bangladesh hosted around 919,000 Rohingya refugees. Over 75% arrived uh, after the 2017 violence. Some estimate that the total number of Rohingya in Bangladesh equal over a million, including those that are not officially designated as refugees. And of the over 900,000 people that have been internally displaced in Burma, including the 560,900 who have been displaced since the start of the coup in 2021, around about 150,000 are Rohingya. While the majority of refugees are in Bangladesh, there are thousands in India and over 100,000 refugees, uh, Rohingya refugees in Malaysia, as well as a few hundred in Thailand. Uh, each summer, when the rainy season kind of ends, Rohingya refugees seek asylum throughout Southeast Asia by fleeing on boats in the Andaman Sea. And each year untold numbers perish from disease and hunger on uh, what is sometimes called floating coffins. So with the coup continuing into its second year, it's very unlikely that this issue will be resolved anytime soon. Yeah, I can remember, unfortunately, in that, that period five years ago, in just a matter of, it seemed like days and weeks, hundreds of thousands were fleeing uh, the persecution by the Burmese military. You mentioned the coup. Uh, can you provide a brief update on the current status of the coup? And uh, does it appear that the uh, military government uh, is losing or gaining ground? And how is it affecting uh, conditions of religious freedom over the past year and a half or so? Yeah, so as you mentioned in the introduction, on August 1st this year, General Hulang, the leader of the Tatmadaw, extended the state of emergency for another year, indicating that from the SEC perspective, a peaceful resolution to the conflict is not yet within sight. It should be remembered that the Bur Burmese military has been 
an unaccountable force practically since the beginning of independent Burma, plundering the country's resources and robbing it of significant economic development. So there's little indication that they can fathom, fathom a Burma without themselves at the top. Evidence of this can be seen in the chilling execution of four pro-democracy activists on July 25th. These executions were disturbing. Their families were unaware, their relatives were about to be executed and faith ceremonies for the deceased were even prevented because the military refused to give up the bodies. The Tatmadaw labeled these activists as terrorists because of their democracy activism, and it labels all those who oppose its rule as terrorists, disregarding any attempts for peaceful mediation. Uh, the religious freedom conditions on the ground have significantly worsened since the coup, and a part of that is because the military continues to closely align itself with hardline Buddhist elements. On September 8th last year, 2021, the Tat released a notorious Buddhist monk named Ashin Virathu, dropping all previous charges against him. Virathu is known by some as the Burmese bin Laden for his insightful, particularly anti-Muslim rhetoric. And on July 14th, 2022, Jonah Halain, alongside two Buddhist monks, consecrated a replica of Shrezigan Pagoda in Moscow, Russia. The SAC have attempted to link the legitimacy to sponsorship of Buddhism in Burma. And to this end, it has also increased attacks against all faith communities, bombing and burning Christian communities and even mining churches. Well, let's turn for a minute to the refugee community because you mentioned earlier that uh, the numbers are, are staggering over 900,000 just uh, in July, the UN uh, estimated numbers. Can you expand on the conditions of Rohingya refugees, particularly in Bangladesh, where the largest number still is? Yeah, so to Bangladesh's credit, they have hosted an enormous number of people. And there is much to commend the government on this regard, especially when you consider that the economy of Bangladesh is ranked as a lower middle income. However, there are many signs that not enough is being done and there are some questionable decisions being made. First of all, in the last year, we've seen a number of assassinations of leaders in Cox's Bazaar, which demonstrates that the security situation for Rohingya refugees is lacking. Tensions between different groups of Rohingya can lead to violence. And on top of this, we've seen, uh, it's a disturbing and interesting statistic. In the last four years, we've seen an increase in the rate of polygamy. Now, polygamy is a part of the cultural and religious traditions of Rohingya, However, reports indicate that this increase is less of a cultural choice than a, the result of socioeconomic factors. Violence in Burma targeted men at higher rates and opportunities for Rohingya refugees to work abroad have been more significant for men. And this has led to about 10%, uh, the camps to have 10% more women than men uh, in Bangladesh. And Rohingya is a very patriarchal culture. so. This discrepancy has led unwed girls and women to be particularly vulnerable to intra-ethnic violence. So we've seen young women, sometimes age 19, marrying men more than twice their age. who already have a wife or, or two at higher rates than we've ever seen before. So there's evidence that socioeconomic factors in these camps are not great. On another issue, the government of Bangladesh has attempted to relocate refugees to an island community it is built called Basan Char. We have reported on conditions from the international community, including the United Nations on this camp. This island is at environmental risk from flooding and soil erosion, 
and there's concerns for the safety and health of the community being moved to a remote location. In addition to Basanchar, the Bangladesh government has made it clear that repatriation is its end game for its Rohingya population. From NGOs and civil society in the field, it appears that the Bangladeshi government is beginning to get impatient with the international community, at least the international civil society, on their handling of Rohingya refugee issues. And examples of this can be seen in visas being denied to those working for international organizations. What about the other regional efforts going on right now, uh, besides uh, hosting refugees? Are, are some of the other neighboring countries and governments there, uh, uh, what are they working on uh, that you're aware of? Yeah, so repatriation is a common goal for all those hosting refugees in Southeast Asia. And the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN, has publicly committed to this. Outside of Bangladesh, Malaysia, as we mentioned, hosts a large number of Rohingya refugees. In May, the UNHCR estimated about 103,000 uh, 103, Rohingya refugees in the country. Despite Malaysia's prominent foreign policy engagement in recent years, attempting to build cross-national Islamic solidarity and engagement, it takes a pretty negative stance to these uh, predominantly Muslim Rohingya. And this is partially informed by the ethnic dimension of this community's South Asian heritage. Uh, um, so on August 11th, Malaysia's government announced a new registration requirement for those already registered um, in, by the UNHCR as refugees. And this sparked fears among those still uh, undocumented. Uh, it should be noted that Malaysia, alongside Bangladesh, Indonesia, Thailand, all of these countries are not party to the 1951 convention relating to the status of refugees. So their obligations to refugees are very limited. However, it can't be ignored that Malaysia, more so than other parts of Southeast Asia, is really shifting its attitude to the situation in Burma. Uh, the foreign minister of Malaysia, for example, Saifuddin Abdullah, has increasingly been vocal against the actions of the SAC and how ASEAN must work with opposition groups such as the National Unity Government or NUG. ASEAN's five-point consensus has failed and the SAC is not a credible committed partner to any peace process that won't place them at the top. So uh, this kind of conversation and rhetoric against Burma and kind of moving the needle towards including other actors is significant. Um, the ministers attending a recent ASEAN conference, which the SAC was not invited to, have used strong language, but they've avoided using uh, condemnatory language, um, urging uh, for peaceful resolution of the process, but not condemning uh, the SAC. Um, so right now, the only hope that we can have is that as these attitudes continue to shift, especially in the democratic parts of Southeast Asia, that they don't forget the Rohingya and that whatever peace ends the conflict, uh, that they know that it won't be sustainable unless justice and accountability are had for the Rohingya and regional countries are needed to ensure that this process occurs. Well, yeah, and you mentioned, and you mentioned justice and accountability, of course, and in our uh, 22, uh, 2022 annual report, uh, as you well know, released this year, um, uh, we recommended the U.S. government support international efforts uh, to hold Burmese authorities accountable. Can you give us a, a brief, uh, you know, uh, overall the summary of how are these international legal efforts going on? And then also, uh, what are some of the things that the United States government 
can do at this point to assist the Rohingya uh, community uh, overall? Yeah, so uh, right off the bat, there are two international legal cases that aim to provide accountability for the 2017 atrocities. Uh, one, the first one is the November 19 uh, case uh, at the International Court of Justice. Gambia initiated this against Burma, claiming the country had violated the Genocide Convention in its 2017 crackdown. The International Criminal Court has also launched an investigation into the military's actions in Rakhine. Yusuf has been following these cases and recommending that the U.S. government uh, assist in efforts to, for documenting and bringing accountability, uh, intervening. We've even recommended that we intervene or join the uh, case at the ICJ. We explored these two cases in our May 2022 fact sheet, uh, and I encourage listeners to check it out. It's called Pursuing Justice and Accountability, Next Steps for Rohingya Community in Burma. Uh, Burma. And uh, we report on these two cases as well as other efforts, including the case under international jurisdiction that is still ongoing through their Argentinian court system. A significant update from that May 2022 fact sheet occurred on July 22nd. Uh, the SAC had initially launched a preliminary objection to the case, uh, trying to prevent it from proceeding. But in July, the ICJ dismissed this, uh, these objections. So this means that the proceedings will, uh, will t uh, continue, um, even though it might take some time, as these cases tend to take a great, a great deal of time. But we at USERF continue to monitor um, and report on any updates. And it's also important to mention that the National Unity Government has recognized the full jurisdiction of the ICJ. But it remains to be seen whether they're willing to hold members of the National League for Democracy, the major party comprising the NUG, accountable to any rulings of complicity in the genocide. Because it's uh, the, the Gambia versus Myanmar is not just the Burmese military, it's also all those that might be complicit in the genocide. Other steps the US could take, we can continue to levy sanctions against members of the military junta as we've already done. Although citing religious freedom uh, violations would be a significant step for the US government to do and also maybe coordinating with, uh, none of them have coordinated sanctions so far, have coordinated with Singapore or Japan. Um, that would be a significant step. We can also continue to fund refugee communities, uh, support Bangladesh. Um, we work with the government and international government organizations to advance um, the conditions for Rohingya in Bangladesh. But there's perhaps more work we could be doing uh, in coordinating policy between IGOs or international government organizations and the government of Bangladesh. So those are a few steps that we could be taking. Well, we'll have to leave it right here. I want to thank uh, Yusuf Policy Analyst Patrick Greenwald uh, for joining us today and sharing his insights about developments in Burma and reflecting on uh, what the international community uh, is doing and what the U.S. could continue to do in a number of cases. On this, of course, today, the five-year anniversary since the Burmese government initiated its genocidal campaign against the Rohingya people. To learn more about Yusuf reporting on Burma and our latest policy recommendations, you can visit our website and find that information there, including uh, that uh, fact sheet that uh, Patrick was uh, referencing as well. As always, thanks for tuning in today, and we'll see you next time on Yusuf Spotlight. 
learn more about USERF and about global religious freedom concerns, visit usurf.gov. That's U-S-C-I-R-F dot gov. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at U-S-C-I-R-F. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for another USERF Spotlight.